Hi, welcome to the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. I'm Paul Schulman. And I'm Chad Swimmer. We are coming at you from the unceded land of the northern Pomo and the coast Yuki, now known as Casper, California. Our show delves into opinions, perspectives, and scientific research on the ecology and politics of the Redwood Coast region. Tonight on the show, we are going to get some updates on what's happening in Jackson State Forest and with the Pomo Land Back Movement. We will hear from Megan Wolf of the Coalition to Save Jackson about the upcoming rally in Sacramento. We're going to have a short conversation with Charlie Schneider of the Jackson Advisory Group. Then we are going to hear from Eric Schramm, the founder of Mendocino Mushrooms and a former employee of CAL FIRE and the U.S. Forest Service. This show is a production of KZYX, listener-powered community radio for Mendocino County and beyond, and of Disquiet Media. Check out our other offerings at disquietmedia.blue. Now we're going to go to more of Gene Parsons on the banjo, live from Camp One Amphitheater at the historic Mendocino Woodlands on the Big River. We are going to start off our show with some updates. I'm speaking to Megan Wolf, who is right now, today, the spokesperson for the Coalition to Save Jackson. Megan, can you give us an update on what's going on right now? Yeah, the big push we have right now is there's an event happening at the California Natural Resources Agency um, next week on September 28th. The California Natural Resource Agency is the department that oversees CAL FIRE, and the head of that is Wade Crowfoot, the secretary of the natural resources. And they're putting on this event that's the 30 by 30 kickoff. And for folks who don't know what the 30 by 30 is, basically, uh, it's an initi- it started as an executive order. So if you go to californianature.california.gov, this is what it'll tell you about what 30 by 30 is. In October 2020, Governor Newsom issued executive order N. 8220, which establishes a state goal of conserving 30% of California's lands and coastal waters by 2030, known by 30 by 30. So the idea is that California has this big goal that's not that many years out from now to conserve 30% of the state. And according to the website, the goal is intended to help accelerate conservation of our lands and coastal waters through voluntary collaborative action with federal and local governments, California Native American tribes, and private landowners. California's 30 by 30 commitment is part of a similar global push for conservation. This event next week is the kickoff off of this. And we want to go as the coalition and the movement for Pomo Land Back to save Jackson to be like, hey, y'all say that you care about conservation and what's going on here? You're logging state lands. You could easily just conserve uh, as part of this. It's like partially the goal of the rally is to like, let's have 30 by 30 cover Jackson and also kind of to embarrass the department in Crowfoot to be like, you guys act like you care about the environment, but you're logging sacred Pomo lands 
commercial logging sacred pummel lands right now in Jackson Forest. So that's like the big thing. So the, we're getting together as many people as we can from the coalition and other allies and um, native folks to to the, to this capital. Well, it's not at the capital, but the capital of Sacramento at the Natural Resource Agency. We want to be outside the event and kind of like making some noise with our signs and stuff to be like, hey, look at what's going on in Jackson. Look, look at this terrible logging on sacred Pomo lands, destroying sacred sites. Uh, walk the walk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what is the time of the rally? The rally is going to begin at 11. The event starts earlier. The event goes all day. We're going to uh, start at 11 and be there until four. And the California Natural Resource Building is at 715 P Street. You can also find all the info on savejackson.org about what time the rally starts and where it's at. And there's carpools and stuff. I don't know uh, what the best way to tell people about that is, but we're, we're trying to be sustainable about it and make it easier for people to go. Yeah, I can add to that later after the interview. This is going to be on a week from Wednesday, Wednesday the 28th. And you can also register for the conference and get free tickets and go in. And so you can go in and talk to the important people and rub shoulders with the mucky mucks and then come out and then rub shoulders with us even muckier mucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to register for the event by the 21st, but it's free. And if you just Google 30 by 30 kickoff, you'll find it, I think. I did it and it took me three minutes, two minutes. So I highly recommend it. And actually, you know what? The link is on savejackson.org as well. When you go to the event info, the link to register is on there too. Well, Megan also took a moment to read the press release from the Coalition to Save Jackson. Our coalition is supporting the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians as they negotiate equal co-management of the Jackson Demonstration State Forest in their Pomo homelands. At nearly 50,000 acres, GDSF is the largest state forest. We are targeting this event at CNRA because co-managing JDSF with local tribes and ending commercial logging in the state-owned forest are necessary if the state wishes to enact its objectives of reconciliation with tribal people and reach its goal of its 30 by 30 goal of preserving lands to slow climate change. Supporting this campaign will have statewide impacts because the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians is negotiating with the state based on Governor Newsom's little publicized directive to state agencies to co-manage lands with the tribes of California. What happens in Pomo homelands can affect tribal co-management in all of California. So please join us. Tribal Chairman Michael Hunter said, for co-management to succeed, it must be a government-to-government -government relationship that creates equal decision-making powers. I worry that the state does not understand the importance of the words they are using. We must ensure that co-management creates an equal relationship between the state and the tribes with equal decision-making authority. At the rally, we're planning to amplify tribal elder Priscilla Hunter's statement, no more broken promises, because after halting logging, road building, and pesticide operations for seven months during negotiations with the tribe, CAL FIRE and CNRA sorry, are resuming these operations before negotiations with the tribe are complete and activists vow continued resistance. The tribe and coalition protest that the state is desecrating POMO and Coast Yuki sacred sites and cultural resources with their operations in JDSF. Furthermore, the state is squandering one of its best tools for fighting climate change by logging mature coast redwoods. 
Sarah Rose says, redwood forests have an amazing climate mitigation potential and management needs to maximize that potential. Sarah Rose is a youth activist with Mendocino County Youth for Climate and a member of the coalition. She says, my generation will have to live with what the planet becomes if we don't save it. We have to face the reality of climate change. Yeah. And I, wa I wanted viewers at home to know that you can help save Jackson Forest with some really simple actions from home. I know it's a lot to ask folks to go all the way to Sacramento, but there are some easy things you could do right now in like two minutes. If you go to savejackson.org, there's a button that says take action. And on there, there's a thing to text using ResistBot. Takes like one minute, super easy. And there's a button to take you to an email action. It's one of those super cool ones where you just fill in your info and it sends it to seven different officials. I love these things because it's so easy. So that's at savejackson.org, super easy actions. We also have the link to the GoFundMe for Pomo Land Back. So you guys can um, support monetarily as well. That link is on savejackson.org. You can also follow Pomo Landback on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Pomo Landback. Megan Wolf, thank you. Thank you, Chad. Unfortunately, as a number of you may have heard, logging has resumed on two and possibly four of the timber harvest plans at Jackson that were that have been the subject of protests by the Coalition to Save Jackson Forest. Red Tail was restarted recently and Chamberlain Confluence a few days before that. That was the Miller Family Band, recorded live at Camp One at the Woodlands. We have on the line Charlie Schneider. Charlie is the North Coast Coordinator for Trout Unlimited and for the last five years has been on the Jackson Advisory Group, holding a seat designated for recreation and conservation. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you were on the KZYX Ecology Hour two weeks ago with Alicia Bales, commenting on your surprise and feeling of being rather blindsided by CAL FIRE's resumption of logging operations on the four THBs. A number of us on the Save Jackson side felt that your statements were not nearly strong enough. We wanted more, while some people from CAL FIRE felt that you had said too much. You are unique in that you have good communications with people as diverse as State Forest Program Manager Kevin Conway, with MRC Forest Policy Director John Anderson, with botanical consultant Amy Wynn, with climate scientist J.P. O'Brien, Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Tribal Chairman Michael Hunter, and of course with myself. Oh, you're walking something of a tightrope by speaking on this publicly, so we really want to acknowledge and thank you for doing it. Can you comment on this tightrope position you're in? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I just, you know, I, well, I'm on the JAG as a recreation advisor, right? So that's really like what I can speak to, you know, sort of from my love, my expertise on the JAG. And then obviously as a fisheries biologist, although that's not my C, but, you know, we certainly, you know, I'm called on to discuss those issues when needed. So I really, you know, since sort of the controversy on the forest, you know, start, starting with Casper 500, Took off. I've really just seen myself as sort of a, a facilitator. And, you know, I have 
my master's degrees in natural resources management. So I just, I've thought a lot about these sort of difficult natural resources problems and how, how we, how we solve them. And so I, I've just felt like that's been a useful role for me. It's just information sharing with folks and, you know, trying to understand everyone's perspective on the issue and then, you know, figure out how we can some, come to some sort of agreement and, and just move things forward, you know, cause the stuff I really want to work on is getting fish recovered and, and mountain biking on the forest. So mm-hmm. Yeah, really trying to understand everyone's perspective and sort of what, you know, folks' needs and desires are, you know, to work towards a, you know, some sort of successful outcome for this whole issue. Yeah. So we've spoken on this before, but the JAG, the Jackson Advisory Group, to be clear, is only an advisory body, but it seems to be taking on more roles these days. However, over the years since it was formed, many people, both environmentalists and foresters, have quit the JAG, feeling like and stating that it's a lot of volunteer work to produce some recommendations that are often disregarded by CAL FIRE. Since CAL FIRE's announcement of the resumption of logging that came right after a JAG meeting, I've spoken with two JAG members, both of whom prefer to remain anonymous, but both express deep frustration and have even considered quitting. I know you can't speak for them, but where do you think this frustration comes from? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I sort of express some frustration as well on on that Ecology Hour interview. You know, and I, I think this is sort of the nature of it, of advisory bodies in some, you know, volunteer advisory bodies in some way. And certainly it's, yeah, it has been a lot of work. I mean, we've all, all of us that are still on the JAG, I know, have put in a lot of time around this issue. You know, and it's kind of just a lot more than a lot of us signed up for. But I think that's a, that's okay in some ways. You know, like we we ultimately see, you know, as you mentioned, the JAG, it has been evolving and this the fact that we're supposedly moving into an update of the management plan is where a lot of this real work will get done. So I, you know, for me, why it's sticking around is for that effort, right? For that management plan rewrite effort. And yeah, I think the frustration, you know, we we just there hasn't been great information sharing, you know, and I I said that on the college hour as well. You know, we just didn't we didn't see that vision document until the JAG meeting. And, you know, Cal Fire said at the meeting that it was something that they were sort of working on, you know, that the week before. So it was hot off the presses. But yeah, it certainly, you know, doesn't help uh, the public's understanding. You know, we're meant to be facilitators between the, the public and Cal Fire. Uh, if we can't share that information with the public and, you know, provide that advisory role that we're supposed to be providing, right? It's not necessarily just my take on anything, but it's it's my sort of constituents take, right? The mountain biker point of view on on how things are going. Yeah. Why, why do you think, Charlie, uh, that it's important to stay on the JAG? Yeah, I mean, I you know I care about the forest, right? That's that's mm-hmm. why I'm here. So you know, I think that uh, keeps me around at least for now. <laughs> Can't say what's going to happen in the future, and and then yeah, the the hope of really making this a, a forest that the community is proud of, and you know, is doing all the things all we all of us want it to do. So the management plan update is certainly exciting, and I hope we can get to it sooner than later. But obviously, you know, with these four sort of outstanding THPs, it, it makes the whole process a lot more difficult. So you know, hopefully, we can get that resolved soon. Well, I've really appreciated what you've been offering to the situation since I've met you and and some of the other JAG members as well. Are it's an opportunity to to try to bring something really special together out of all this. It it seems like it can only happen if the JAG has more is more effective in some way is is more than just advisory. I I don't know if there's any talk of how the 
charter could get changed or so the board of forestry needs to change the charter and we have recommended changes to the board right you know the the charter has various seats on it essentially but we did request that they add a, a traditional ecological knowledge or like tribal knowledge seat to that which they did you know and has been filled which is great so that's like official you know they officially updated the jag charter but i think bigger picture in terms of why the jags there right we're we're an advisory body to cal fire and Cal Fire is directed by the law to manage this land in a certain way, right? This is that the big public lands issue that that I, you know, really feel is the root of this. It's the public's land and they get some, you know, say in how it's managed. And, you know, we, we've done that here by the state law that designates um, demonstration for us and then Cal Fire to manage them in a certain way. We sort of serve at the request of the director of CAL FIRE to be an advisory body to them. So in some ways, it's ultimately up to CAL FIRE if they want to hear from us or any advisory body mm-hmm. you know, on the management of the forest, sort of in their application of the law or you know, their you know, efforts to, to do what the law tells them to do in this case. The mm-hmm. law being, in this case, the legislative mandate? Yeah, correct. So if the public wanted to change the mandate, they would have to go at it through the legislator. Is that correct? Yeah. If you wanted to change the mandate, you'd have to change the law. You know, is there some leeway, you know, and this is a discussion folks have, you know, I've had with other folks is like, is there leeway under the existing statute to manage the forest in different ways? And I, you know, I think that could be argued, you know, multiple ways. And I'm not a lawyer, right? This is probably a question for a lawyer, but even under the current statute, there are portions of the forest that aren't under timber management, right? There's old growth reserves, for example, you know, small, not a lot of them, but some of them. So <laughs> I think it's, you know, it's worth noting that the, the statute isn't so prescriptive that it stops Cal Fire from doing anything, right? There's a lot of leeway under the existing law to, um, to do a lot of different things. And that, you know, that's not an argument for or against, you know, changing the statute, you know, everyone I think can make their own decision, but mm-hmm. I would certainly urge folks that are involved in this to go, you know, it's at the end of the management plan to go read the, the laws that, you know, govern the forest. Because that's what CAL FIRE's having to do. You know, that's what we're all going to have to do as we go to rewrite this management plan is figure out if it complies with the law or not. So it's good background to have. Mm-hmm. So yeah. along the lines of reading the management plan, you and Amy Wynn, who is on the JAG, spent a substantial amount of time analyzing the 2016 JDSF management plan to see how it would need to be revised for the future tribal co-management that's developing. You summarized your work in a series of recommendations, and when you presented these to the JAG and also to the public at the public meeting last spring at the Casper Kiosk, a number of people present, including one indigenous activist who's been key in the Save Jackson movement, were visibly moved to tears. So uh, you obviously did something right, and you presented it in a you know a very sensitive way. So I have a few questions about that. And first is just logistics. Do you have any idea how much time you spent on creating those recommendations? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I, I'm I'm not even sure. It took months to get them done. I'll say that, but I wasn't working on them straight through for sure. Yeah, and I definitely sort of Native American rights is is something I'm super interested in, even though I'm just a white guy. Um, but you know. Uh, in a lot of our fisheries work, we we try to be good allies, and we were fortunate enough to to work with tribes on a lot of different projects. So uh, I wanted to make sure that you know I was doing putting in my best effort. You know, think about it from from an indigenous perspective, and try to do the best job I could. You know, based on sort of the legal, you know, again, not a lawyer, but based on sort of you know my best understanding of the law and the executive orders. So you know, it's not my the my normal playground, but I definitely learned a lot, and I sort of took took it on as as a, a self learning experience as well. 
which I do things you like to do and it makes them less work, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it did mean a lot, I thought, back when Michael Hunter was having the big get-togethers up in the forest to introduce people to what's going on up there. You and Chris Blanco were both there. And, and I, I just thought that was really important. You weren't waiting for stuff just to come to you. <laughs> you know, you were seeking out what people were saying. I think it just gets back to my, you know, my natural resources background. And you just can't, you're talking around each other. You can't solve any problems, right? It's really that fundamental understanding of it's being like empathetic to other people's needs. Just you care a lot, right? You care enough to throw a rally, right? To have all these people show up. All these people care enough to show up. So there's something here. And like, mm -hmm. what is it? And I need to understand sort of its essence to be able to distill it down and, you know, explain it. <laughs> right. Short snippets on the radio or, you know, to Cal Fire. I presented that document to the Board of Forestry as well. So we took that all the way to, to the board and hopefully they read it and hopefully it went up from there as well. So it's no replacement for Michael Hunter to, you know, to have his tribal count, you know, his tribal council, meaning tribal lawyer, you know, take a look at it. There's some pretty hard legal questions surrounding that document that I just don't think we, anyone has answers to. They'll have to be litigated and tested. And that's part of what makes this co-management thing so interesting because it is such a new tool or a new, a new feature on sort of our management landscape here in mm -hmm. California. So what were the recommendations you made? I'll just really simplify it. I think the key, the fundamental thing to co-management is ceding power to tribes. And I think that that is, if you want to just wrap it up in a nutshell, it's tribes get to stand side by side with the state of California in managing the land. And what that means specifically, that like decision-making process, I don't have an answer for that. And I can't because I am not a tribe or I am not Michael Hunter, right? He gets to help Chairman Hunter along with the state of California need to sit down side by side and hash out what that is. And that's, that's not a role for myself or the JAG. That's a government to government decision or, or negotiation. If you want to take anything away from it, that's it. It's a seating of power and a agreement, you know, whatever that agreement looks like to work hand in hand on, on managing a land or resource. Mm -hmm. Do you have any idea of the status of your recommendations at the moment? I don't know. And I mean, you know, we, we've, we hear updates, you know, from Cal Fire, they're confidential, you know, so I try not to pry, but you know, that, that they're ongoing and that's basically all Cal Fire can tell us. And I don't ask Chairman Hunter those questions either. I, I, I don't think I need to know, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So did it feel wrong to you that apparently Chairman Hunter was not consulted about the reopening of those plans? Yeah, Absolutely. I felt like it was represented at the JAG meeting that there was some, or there would be some agreement, you know, finalized before those, those plans move forward and that they were on a, a path to make those final decisions. Right. And I don't know how that would have looked, right. If Chairman Hunter would have made a statement or if, you know, Califier would have made a statement again, two different problems here. I, I think it's important to clarify that, right. The co-management agreement is a legally binding something MOU some sort of agreement between the tribe and Cal Fire to do co-management. Without that being done right now, I don't know what you would call it. You know, this is more like a handshake agreement. It may not be legally binding, you know, for what to do with these four outstanding THPs. So it's sort of two separate problems. Chairman Hunter has said it out loud, it, and a lot of other people has. It certainly makes a co-management agreement more difficult to agree upon, you know, with sort of these outside forces acting on, you know, on what's happening. So, yeah. I'd, yeah, I'd like I mean, to just for um, people listening to clarify the timeline that a Friday 
I can't remember the date, a few weeks ago, would, there was a JAG meeting and there were at least 40 people there, including myself and the entire, well, most of the JAG, Charlie Schneider, and uh, the tone of the conversation was really different than what came out three days later on Monday when the announcement was made that logging was going to resume. I mean, I, I don't even know where operations have resumed, but it's not on all four plans. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like us to know about the JAG or current events in JDSF? Anything else you'd like to add to this? Nothing I can think of off the top of my head. You know, we are planning a, a fall meeting, taking the public's input on sort of when and how we do those meetings, you know, into consideration. We've, we've got a bunch of weekend dates in our Google poll. So, you know, again, it's hard to get all these people together, right? We've got a lot of busy folks on the JAG, which is which is great because we have a lot of really smart people to, to add to the conversation, but getting all those people together can be tough. So hopefully we can get a weekend date that works for everybody. Yeah. You know, I can tell you for me, I, I made sure to, to check those boxes and that'll be, I think in October, sort of got like three weeks, October into November for, for the next meeting. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's kind of the next, the next step. And, and hopefully Coyote Valley are still in negotiations over the co-management agreement. Yeah. Well, thank well, you so much for taking time mm-hmm. out of your busy schedule as a Trout Unlimited yes. Coastal Coordinator and as a busy dad. Yes, I'm uh, off to Little League uh, immediately following this. So, <laughs> oh, Great. Well, thanks for taking the time, Charlie. Cool. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. All right. I'm speaking with Eric Schramm on the back porch of his house in the Mendocino Cypress Woodlands. Eric, how would you like to be introduced? Ex-owner of uh, Mendocino Mushrooms for over 40 years who pioneered the wild mushroom industry in North America and uh, taught thousands of people how to pick uh, and uh, wild mushrooms uh, in the forest and um, help themselves subsist. And it had a lot of um, impaired people, you might say, <laughs> and uh, it became a little bit of a ministry of of teaching uh, people to go in the woods where nobody would bother them and make money so they could feed themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you go to the KZOAX podcast version of the show or to disquietmedia.blue, you can listen to the full-length interview where Eric talks about his work with the U.S. Forest Service up in McLeod, east of Mount Shasta. I would uh, work on my parents' house up here in Fort Bragg that we built back in the in 67, I believe. And one day ran into Forrest Tilly at the old Fort Bragg Deli while I was eating lunch. And he was the manager of Jackson State Forest. And it was quite the, the thing. He was in his uniform and here I was with long hair and, and a beard and looking pretty scraggly. I asked him, I said, do you have any job openings? Just out of curiosity with my forestry background. and. He looked me up and down and, and uh, just said, well, what are your qualifications? And I started running off, you know, hotshot crew and federal law enforcement and on and on. And his jaw just kept dropping further and further. And he uh, looked at me and said, can you be in my office in an hour? He said, we've been trying to find a, a state forest patrolman, but we can't find anybody that's qualified. Hmm. And I said, no, I've got to finish my work day, but I'll be there at five if you wait for me. And that started my career on the Jackson State Forest as the law enforcement. Back at those times, it was uh, a matter, there had been no permanent law enforcement on Jackson State. And 
I had two temporary, actually retired peace officers that were um, working part-time, and but I was the first full-time and it was a supervisor for them. And so back then, when our big thing was to keep gardens, pot gardens off the forest, we, my first year here, I removed over 100 abandoned vehicles, uh, everything from local chop shops to uh, vehicles stolen from San Francisco airport. I, my nickname with the state park rangers was uh, Garbage Man because I wrote more citations for um, litter than any, any other peace officer on the coast. Mm. Um, we had a lot of, even back then, uh, a lot of dumps where people were going out in the forest and I dig through the, the diapers and the dead meat and everything else and come up with names and issue them a citation. And um, the, the state forest was quite different then. We had 18 free camping areas on, on the forest, uh, dispersed all over the, the forest. And because of the, they didn't charge anything, we had a lot of uh, disparaged people um, down and out people uh, staying out there and they brought quite a few problems with them and uh, it spent a lot of time referring people to social services trying to to help them at the same time keep a lid on the craziness that happened and I had everything from attempted murders to um, the robberies and um, beating people with tire irons on and on it uh, was pretty crazy back then and another major difference is, is I've really seen the state forest tighten down access, which in some ways is good, in other ways it isn't. But I kept every road, every gate that's uh, closed now and locked, I kept them open all winter long even. Hmm. And back then we had a program where we spent the money in the spring to take the grader and to clean up the roads um, because some of them would get torn up and uh, that's really been a disappointment to me about how uh, the state forest has locked everything down. And I know it benefits maybe uh, guys like you bicyclers that uh, don't have to worry about cars coming around a corner. But at the same time, there's a lot of areas for mushroomers and hikers that are tough access. Yeah. And, and that's a very... Um, discouraging to, to me that this is state land. The state puts a lot of uh, money back into the state economy. The state forest puts a lot of money from the logging revenues back and it's, it was a cash cow for years. And yet we can't afford to keep the roads open. Mm -hmm. And the, another thing that was real interesting back then, it was always so funny because um, I gave away lots of firewood. Uh, besides opening the logged areas like they do now, we had dispersed firewood cutting. Yeah. And being a mushroomer, I've walked through thousands of miles of the state forest, and there are hundreds and hundreds of cords of wood laying out there with access off the roads. But if a tree fell in the woods in the middle of winter out by Chamberlain in the middle of nowhere, the next day I'd have three people waiting in line to get in that tree hmm. because I would give them permission to cut the tree if it wasn't merchantable, I'd have to check it out and then let them do it. And so they were really utilizing the and reducing the fire hazard by getting this, just like I did for the um, Forest Service, dragging those big old logs out, getting rid of that. 
And you have to with the, find the balance of leaving some logs and snags. So th those are just some ways that the state forest hasn't uh, has clamped down and not uh, allowed utilization. I know there's people in Fort Bragg hurting for firewood. Mm -hmm. And it's sad to me that it would reduce the fire danger and um, supply uh, people with wood. Mm -hmm. So how did this lead into mushroom picking and mushroom exporting? Well, it was as a patrolman, I was out there every day doing 120 miles a day on my truck on the, the roads. And, and uh, so I started as a, a federal forest patrolman picking uh, morel and bleats up in the mountains, up in the Mount Shasta area. And I knew those two mushrooms, but I didn't know coastal mushrooms because I hadn't spent that much time in this forest. And I came over and um, took the job as a forest patrolman, and my mom made the mistake of Christmas one year buying me mushrooms demystified <laughs> by David Aurora, of course. And uh, that was uh, the start. Um, I would pick uh, everything I saw along the road while I was patrolling, and uh, that was edible, and uh, give them to my friends and to my mom and and uh, to everybody. And one day uh, I ended up with probably about twenty pounds of chanterelles, and didn't know gave everybody that wanted some some. I still had them left. So at that point, I went home, took off my gun, took off my bulletproof vest. Scared to death, went down and knocked on the back door of Cafe Beaujolais. Hmm. And uh, Chris Kumpf answered the door and looked at me, and I'm scared to death, asked, would you like to buy these wild mushrooms? And he looked at me and said, yeah, can you get me more? And in that moment, Mendocino Mushrooms was born. What year was that? Probably 82 83, something like that, a long time ago. I think the first, Heidi Kuzik Dickerson did the, the first article, three-page article spread on me and my company, I think in 86, in the Chronicle, San Francisco Chronicle. So that's how, and I'd been just sidelining the mushrooms before, before I started the company, and it built up that uh, I supplied the local restaurants and had more than I started allowing people to, teaching people to pick, and... So I sent them to San Francisco, and eventually I ended up sending them to Europe and Japan and uh, shipping all over the world uh, in season. Um, mushrooms are a, a commodity that grows around the world that most people don't realize. At one point, I testified bef before Congress, uh, a subcommittee, about uh, forest products, special forest products, and we identified over five to 600 special for forest products that can provide income coming out of the forest without damaging, most of them without damaging the forest. Uh, ginseng that's picked on federal land, of course, you're destroying a plant and they are becoming endangered. But, yeah. but many others were, um, were good. But uh, world consumption of chanterelle mushrooms in 2000, um, the year 2000, was 420 million pounds. Oh, yeah. wow. And if you go to, of course, the world is different in, in Asia and Europe price-wise and everything, but you know, at Whole Foods, chanterelles will probably sell for 20 to $35 a pound. So if you start putting a dollar amount on that, that's just one of the 30 different species of mushrooms that I shipped. Mm -hmm. And so there was a, 
uh, it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry that people don't even know exists. Mm -hmm. How much do you think you would ship on an average out of Mendocino County? Um, every year was different and it depend on the competition. It wasn't long before, uh, after my first probably two years of buying here, like three or four or five other companies moved in um, because we were the southern tip of the um, the wild mushroom uh, bloom. And uh, people would be following the Matsutakis down and uh, from northern BC, Alaska, where it starts in August, and they would end up here in December. Um, and so... And then after the Matsutakis, we discovered the black trumpets here. No one had really picked the black trumpets. It was funny. I used to talk to the guys that picked for me were fallers and who used to go out in the woods with their dads who were fallers. And they'd lay on big clumps of black trumpets as pillows while they were watching their dad work when they were kids. Wow. And nobody even knew really what they were. Hmm. I mean, there's some indigenous use of Matsutake and uh, maybe black trumpets, but I haven't documented much of that. Yeah. So we found out that at that point we were one of the biggest areas out uh, outside of Europe that had the black trumpet mushrooms. And now, of course, they've expanded. Like when I started with Matsutake, Matsutake were ex being exported from about seven different countries. And now there's about 75 Ooh. that export to Japan. So. Yeah. It's affected prices directly, and a lot of people don't understand. There was a time when I paid the pickers $100 a pound for a number one Masataki, and now they can be anywhere down as low as 3 to $5 a pound. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a market, and it depends on, it's a world market. Yeah. Um, I, my competition in Europe when I was exporting was uh, basically Spain and Portugal that have hedgehogs and black trumpets and the same mushrooms that uh, that grow here grow there. And their season pretty much coincides with us a little bit earlier. And so it, in the mushroom game, it's all having something that nobody else in the world has. If you hit that time frame, there's good money in it. But otherwise, it's, um, it's, a, it's a, a pretty tough way to make a living. Mm-hmm. background here we have activist Silver Fox on guitar you were talking about the Super Bowl of mushrooms up in Oregon a huge camp of buying and selling Matsutakis the Super Bowl of, of Matsutake is at Crescent Junction, which is about 10 to 15 miles north of Crater Lake in Oregon. It's just a massive operation for many years. Uh, it's, it's all changed again. But at the point where I was there buying, it was a huge, huge 
deal because there was 5,000 pickers coming in every night and selling to about 40 companies. And we were all these tents and hovels just lined up along the road that were the buying stations for the different companies. And so every night, the, the way the buy works is that we open the buy station at four and the pickers get in line and sell us some mushrooms. And you're more like a, a, um, a barroom barker than you are a mushroom buyer because everybody's trying to get the people to come to them. And, and you're saying, uh, highest price here, highest price here. And, and uh, 80% of the people, probably more, are Asians, Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotian. So uh, we would buy till from four until about two o'clock every night. And at that time, it was a big season. The world market was such that uh, we were paying the five different grades of Masataki. $100 for number ones, $100 for number two, 60, 40, 40. So even the big open flats that were old were worth $40 a pound. Oh. And it was so crazy that we were walking in the buy station, these little tent hovels with uh, thirty dollars to $50,000 in cash because we pay all cash and paying a guy with a shotgun to guard us just so in case somebody didn't try to rip, rip us off. Because remember, we're pretty much in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So it was a real interesting, uh, crazy operation. Then about two in the, in the morning, the semi-trucks would start pulling in. And uh, we'd start loading up uh, the Masataki to uh, be taken to the plant, uh, which are by Portland and Seattle airports. And uh, th they would be resorted and cleaned and uh, shipped to Japan. So there would be, oh, 15 semi-trucks full of Masataki, probably uh, every night varied, but anywhere from 50 to 80,000 pounds of Masatakis per night. For how long? Going. For the peak of the season was probably a month, and it tails in and tails out, but the better part of a month. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's world consumption of mushrooms. Every society, except for um, Americans, uh, North North Americans, I should say, um, <laughs> eating wild mushrooms is part of their culture, of their heritage. Yeah, and that's when uh, when I started, uh, I realized that that was a window because of my uh, background that uh, nobody was teaching Americans to eat wild mushrooms, and that's what started my journey and. As a, as a mushroom politician, I, I vowed to put a mushroom in every garage. <laughs> <laughs> but you alluded to this earlier that it takes a certain kind of person to go out there in the woods and to, you know, you're on your hands and knees in the dirt half the day. And yeah. it's, um, but it's also a, a niche for people who don't otherwise have a really good way to make a living. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it really helped a lot of people, and it, it made my job a, li a little tough dealing with the, the different uh, di diversions of, of the people, but it, it really helped. There were um, mentally impaired people that uh, could take their dogs and go out in the woods and not get beat up, and they could make enough money to, to pay for their dinner, and I bought a, one uh, picker, um, dog gym, we call them, uh, a car that cost, I think, like $1,700. And he paid me back every cent. 
basically riding a bicycle out to McGuire's opening, picking mushrooms, and sometimes riding back at night. So many people complained about almost hitting them that I'd hear about it. And uh, he paid me back for uh, what uh, for the car I bought him, and that allowed him to pick more and have a little more stable life. With the people who you were dealing with, did you find that they became more consistent with your business once they realized they had an outlet? Yeah, it... Um, I had everybody from from the mayor to um, the uh, school teachers, you know, picking mushrooms for me in time because everybody loved it. You're out in the woods, you're getting exercised, you know. It's it's really a, and you get something you can eat. The the what I rejected that I couldn't buy because they were a little too dirty or too beat up. If it's a tough job, you you had to eat them, <laughs> and uh, so it it really. Uh, was was a good way for uh, getting across um, uh, across all uh, aspects of, of uh, society. So a lot of people would start picking, and uh, I have people today that uh, are disparaged because I, I've uh, retired, and they've picked for me for some of them for 30, 35 years, and and they love it. It's something that. Uh, uh, I used to tell him, I said, everybody wins. The, the forest wins, the people win, and the people that eat them win. Um, there wasn't uh, very much negative because if you get into the environmental side of it, if picking a mushroom is like picking an apple, and uh, it's, uh, it doesn't harm anything if you don't change the environment. Our biggest uh, problem in the industry is loss of environment due to logging. Mm -hmm. And I've lost hundreds and thousands probably of patches out on the state forest because of the their logging. And it's been tried. There are some areas uh, in, in on North America, mostly in Canada, where they decided the mushrooms are worth more than the timber. Because huh. the timber just gets better, of course. It just grows and gets better. And the longer you can put off... Um, to um, logging it to some degree, you know, of course, there's always going to be some kind of uh, forest death. But uh, if you lose a small percentage of the trees and let the other ones grow, the timber becomes worth more. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you and I have talked about that you are for forest management, active forest management. But we've also talked about how areas that say when they've been selectively logged. And a good example that I had was on off of Little Lake, uh, kind of a corner of Jackson, where they did some selective logging 20 years ago and, and the chanterelles completely dried up. It's it's interesting that, you know, because the mushrooms are different. They're like chanterelles, golden chanterelles. There's probably about seven different species. And so it's the, the Californicus, that, which is one of the ones we have here, and um, the one that grows with the fir tree is more impacted by logging probably than many. Up in the, the Pacific Northwest, the, the chanterelles grow uh, uh, very strongly in, in uh, 20 to 30-year-old fir reproduction. But here, like you say, I've lost patch after patch because they, uh, it's a different mushroom uh, reacting in, in a different way. So... Uh, I've had the uh, the boon and the bane of of uh, picking um, mushrooms, morel mushrooms, from the Arctic Circle down to L.A. And I've seen all kinds of different logging practices in Canada, 
where I've worked and Prince of Wales Island, um, on and on. And <clears throat> each entity does uh, different um, styles of logging, and some are good and some are bad. Um, years ago, the U.S. Forest Service, the feds, uh, was had some really bad practices and were causing a lot of problems. Now, with corporate greed going on and they're, they're logging so heavily of areas and getting away with uh, murder, flaunting the, the uh, clear-cut laws um, that they've destroyed a huge amounts of, of habitat. Morel mushrooms like disturbed soil. And we would actually look for the last 45 years for logged areas in the Sierras to pick morel mushrooms. And it used to be that we could, they were very uh, prolific. But now that the, the logging, the type of logging that they're doing with the feller bunchers and um, just the, the taking out all the brush and everything, they're not leaving enough shade for, for the morels to grow. So areas where um, they should be grown from a sustained yield logging area in the skid trails, they're not growing at all because it's all totally open and uh, it's exposed to, to the sun. Mm-hmm. There's no needle bed that they, they like. So it's changed. And th- those are one of the ones that like disturbed soil. If you get with the bleats and the chanterelles and many of the other mushrooms, even the, the black trumpets, black trumpets grow with tan oaks. So sometimes I feel that we have more tan oaks now because of the logging they did in the last 100, 150 years that they've come back and more prolific. And so we have more black trumpets because of that. But when they log now, if they, if they kill the oaks, if they um, poison them or if they gird them or however they choose to kill them, of course, we're losing black trumpet habitat. Mm-hmm. So there's two sides to the coin. But if you don't disturb the habitat, there's areas in Europe that they've been picking the same 10 square feet where the mushrooms have been growing for hundreds of years. And generation after generation goes back to those areas and is able to pick them. Where here, because of logging, we really can't do that. We're always looking for new spots. Mm-hmm. That's hard work. Yeah. I've done yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. More ups and downs and we go places. There's a reason that every year we find about three or four bodies out in the woods because we go places nobody in their right mind would. Yeah. So you've spoken to me about the, the ecological side of it and you know the, the connections between what's going on below ground and what's going on in, in the bodies and spirits of the beings above ground, the trees and the animals and the humans that are, that are walking these forests. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, it's funny that when uh, growing up in the woods like I did, um, and in my early life, uh, I was a hunter and fisherman, haven't been that for 40 years probably, but um, we thought we were in tune with the forest. You know, you knew where the deer slept and what they ate and where they went and what they did. And when I started the, the mushroom company, it was just an excuse to be in the forest and, uh, and make money doing it. Never realizing the journey um, the mushrooms were going to take me on of um, learning to understand connection. And uh, the word had no meaning to me, even though it's used a lot. But 
it, through the time of learning how mycelium is the number one degenerator of organic matter, and it because of that, and all the relationships with the trees and the bushes, that life wouldn't exist as we know it without mushroom mycelium doing what it does. And then you add in the the nematodes and the diatoms and all the other little things that have a job that they do, just like the mycelium does a job every day. And it's what creates the balance. And that was the beauty of, of learning to understand the, the balance. And we've there's so much research now in the last 20 years of um, how the trees uh, communicate to their saplings and stuff. There's a lady up in BC that's doing a study of mother trees and how the communication through the mycelium and the rootlets of the trees tell the mother tree what the sapling needs to grow. And there are just so many little things. In one study in uh, Europe, they put a radioactive isotope in a, it, it, a 20 foot level on a tree and that radioactive isotope ended up like 100 feet away in the middle of another tree. Mm-hmm. And the, the rootlets weren't attached, but the mycelium was. So the, it's, it, the mycelium is just a big water pump. People don't understand how mushrooms work. There's a reason they're a separate kingdom. And uh, the, the fungi kingdom is uh, very unique. And mushrooms grow, uh, which are just the fruiting body um, of the mycelium. The mycelium is the apple tree, the mushrooms are the uh, apples, and the spores are the apple seed. And mushrooms grow by cell expansion, not cell division, unlike other things in the animal kingdom and plant kingdom. It's real interesting that when two fibrils of, of uh, mycelium touch each other underground, they create a growth bud. And then that growth bed is a sex organ. And that growth bud then puts up primordial mushrooms. Now, a primordial mushroom is the size of the very tip of a ballpoint pen. And that tiny mushroom and a 30-pound bleed that's two and a half, three feet across and the stem on it, a foot thick, and I've seen 30-pound bleeds, it has the same number of cells. Wow. So they don't grow... Um, by expansion, uh, by division, but by expansion. And uh, this has been really, really interesting. Thank you for, for being here. Ah, uh, you're welcome. It's always good to talk about the forest. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for spending this time with us here on the Trail Stewards Radio Hour. The third Tuesday of every month focusing on forest conservation, forest management, logging, and specifically Jackson State Forest. You can listen to this and other archived shows by going to www.disquietmedia.blue or by going to www.kzyx.org. We would like to thank our guests, our intern, Ravel Gautier, for their work editing these interviews, Rich Colbertson and Alicia Bales of KZYX for their support and guidance, Gene Parsons for the banjo work, and Across the Dimensions to the immortal Clarence White in the background on guitar. The views and opinions expressed are not that of the staff or management of any station that airs this show, 
but only those of ourselves and our guests. In the words of Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, also mother, scientist, decorated professor, practitioner of traditional ecological knowledge, and enrolled member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation, what we do here matters. Everybody lives downstream. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>